If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Thursday, April 21st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On the floor of the Michigan Senate Tuesday, Mallory McMorrow laid into a Republican colleague who accused her of being a groomer, i.e. abetting pedophilia. She said, My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. You've probably heard the speech. It went viral. It was sharp, informative, resonant. McMorrow did a bunch of national news hits and raised way more money than a state senator ever raises. But by yesterday, the speech was being hailed as more than a rousing cri de corps. It was a playbook, a path forward, a template. The Washington Post headline, a young Democrat's viral takedown demands a wokeness rethink. And Greg Sargent, who wrote the piece, quoted James Carville. James Carville tells me this is a good way forward for Dems to address the, quote, wokeness problem. Politico quoted Democratic communications expert Ben LeBolt as saying that the conservative culture war arguments are built on the premise of a foreign idea or set of values invading a local community or family unit, threatening what they hold dear. But McMorrow turned that narrative upside down by accusing the GOP of being the ones threatening values. That's true. You heard that in the clip I played up top. You hear it more in this part of the speech. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. And she called out the phenomenon of the hypocritical Christian, and that is a rallying cry for Christians and non-Christians alike. She did link her remarks to practical concerns. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment or that health care costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. So overall, it was a really well done speech. But I didn't quite see how it was a replicable path forward. A lot of people who already agreed with McMorrow cheered on McMorrow. That doesn't indicate that this is a message that will reach those who don't already agree or those on the fence or neutralize the enemy's argument. I can remember many examples, like Texas Senator Wendy Davis, her impassioned speech on the floor of the Texas State House. It rallied those who agreed with her on the abortion issue. It raised her national profile, and it led to her losing the race for governor by over 20 points. So what is the magic replicable formula? I asked around, and here are the ideas in the form of bullet points with some commentary in between. One, no jargon. I couldn't agree more. McMorrow identified herself as, I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. So straight and white, but not cis, not gender fluid, and not identifying as anything, also no pronouns. Actually, I bet she could have used her pronouns, but only because I assume they're she and her. Two, in a speech like this, emphasize, I'm you. 
Get the audience to identify with you, the speaker, because you are them. It's a great way to swing white Christian suburban voters. This is a rhetorical tactic available to white Christian suburban candidates. Less than a third of Democrats are white Christians. Half are not suburban. I wasn't able to access the percent that was white Christian and suburban, all three, but it's in the very low double digits. So this quote-unquote template, it's not available to 80-something percent of politicians. Still, if it is, get people to identify with you. Three, don't ignore the issue of progressive activism or what the Washington Post headline calls wokeness, but leverage it. Accuse your accuser. Oh, you're saying woke because you don't want to say that you've underfunded the schools. You call me woke because you want to detract from crumbling infrastructure. They call me woke as you go broke for it. Don't say that. I just want to be Jesse Jackson for a second. Five, letter rip. Really, four. This is an effective technique when given the ammunition of a disgusting smear like being charged with pedophilia. The anger is justifiable and identifiable. What would you say if someone called you a groomer or a pedophile? A pedophile! But not all Republicans are that outrageous or tactically stupid as Mallory McMorrow's rival was. And while there are a disturbing number of Republican candidates who would be so outrageous, Most won't. The speech was cited by many in the context of, ah, if only Terry McAuliffe could have used examples like this instead of being hamstrung by Glenn Youngkin's charge of wokeness in the Virginia governor's race. But Youngkin wasn't so stupid as to actually allege pedophilia. And I think that's an underrated aspect of what gives this speech its power. It also makes me think if this speech does suggest a viable playbook, it's one for Republicans to follow. Drop the groomer charge. It gives your rival too much ammo. So do I think Mallory McMorrow's speech was solid? Sure I do. Do I look at the speech of Mallory McMorrow as the road to tomorrow? No. Does my penchant for terrible rhymes call into question my qualification as a successful communicator? Not even half as much as this litany of rhetorical questions does. You might hate it, but you can't let hate win. On the show today, the subtraction of CNN Plus suggests a multiplicity of problems that adds up to a divided network. But first, Yasha Munk is Associate Professor in International Affairs at Johns Hopkins. He's the founder of the Persuasion Community, host of the Good Fight podcast, and author of the new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Yasha Munk, next. here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. 
cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The United States, a diverse democracy, and diversity is our strength, we're told, is engaging in an experiment. Not really an experiment. We had no choice. We're going from one ethnic majority to not a different ethnic majority, but that majority becoming the minority. We're trying to do it peacefully. We're trying to do it functionally. From what I understand, this has never happened in the history of the world. Now, it is not true that no societies have ever embraced diversity, maybe not ethnic diversity, and been successful, but it's hard. So to talk us through it, and no one has been looking at this in a more careful and considered way than Yasha Munk, and he is the author of The Great Experiment why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. Yasha, welcome back to the gist. Thank you so much. So let's start with a success story, I guess. And it's almost cheating when you talk about Scandinavia, but the Netherlands seems to have not done ethnic diversity well, but religious diversity pretty well. How'd they do it? What lessons can we learn? That's funny because I'm just back from the Netherlands, actually. Uh, This book was out in the Netherlands before it was out in the United States for complicated reasons. And so um, I was just on on book tour there and I've been thinking about it. Well, uh, you know, one way that you might be able to deal with ethnic or religious diversity is to pillarize society, to say, we put you into these different groups. Your rights and your duties are defined not by your citizenship, but by your membership in a particular group. Um, the kind of laws for marriage and divorce and education and inheritance and all that sort of most important personal stuff is determined uh, within the group. It varies between different citizens of the state. Um, This is is basically how Lebanon did it, right? Exactly. So you see, so so, so there's a a Dutch political scientist called Arend Leipard who says, that's why the Netherlands is, is able to deal with its religious diversity. And this is not just a European story. That's, he says, in 1969, that's why Lebanon is able to keep the peace between Shiites and Sunnis and Maronite Christians. Well, of course, three years later, Lebanon erupts into a terrible civil war, which lasts for a very long time. Um, And I think that starts to show us some of the problems with that kind of idea. I today think the Netherlands worked because they're a very affluent society, because the difference between Catholics and Protestants became way less important at a moment of rapid secularization because the Netherlands had lots of democratic neighbors, it was a member of the European Union. You tried to put the same recipe in a place like Lebanon, and it didn't work at all, because it actually deepened the differences between those groups. It deepened those kinds of rivalries that defined so many democracies. Yeah, people listening will say, come on, the Netherlands, they're homogeneous, and they won't even consider the tensions between Catholics and Protestants and sub-strains of those religions, which I guess both proves the point, in both forms it proves the point, it both tests it and demonstrates the difficulty of this. Uh, The fact that the Netherlands was successful says something, but we now in America and probably the world look at ethnic minorities being so much more complicated to navigate around than religious uh, minorities, at least Christian religious minorities. A, a bit of both is true here. So one of the things I learned for doing research on this book 
is how easily people form groups and how easily they come to discriminate in favor of the in-group and against the, the out-group. Uh, we see that again and again um, in, in history. Um, you know, distinctions that now seem superficial or, or strange or, or just unimportant had fundamental significance. Minor theological disagreements, for example. Uh, we see it in the lab as well. There's a wonderful study where the social psychologist wants to figure out what makes us capable of being the so discriminatory in groups, why people often do terrible things in the name of that group. And he says, let me create these groups that are so silly, so pointless, that nobody would actually act on their behalf. And then I can add features to those groups to see what makes human beings groupish when they start to discriminate against outsiders. So he gets a bunch of kids into a classroom and he shows them a sheet of paper with 150 dots on it. And he gets them to estimate how many dots are on the sheets of paper. And then some say 100 and some say 200. And he divides them into a group of underestimators and a group of overestimators. And he has them play a game against each other. And he expects that they don't discriminate against each other because what on earth significance does underestimators and overestimators have? And it turns out the underestimators discriminate against overestimators and vice versa. With my own undergrads who pride themselves on how tolerant and forward-looking and so on they are, I've asked them whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And the people who said that a hot dog is a sandwich started to discriminate against the people who thought that it wasn't a sandwich in a sort of simple game that they then had to play. So all of that is true. At the same time, we also know from history that there are some groups that are, uh, and some kinds of distinctions between humans that are even more deeply motivating. When you look at the most horrible civil wars, genocides, the moments of, of deep domination and oppression like slavery in the United States, it often was along uh, the lines of very salient religious and ethnic differences. And so, yes, in a society like the Netherlands in 1950, it's a big deal whether you're Catholic and Protestant. And the society might have founded on that. But you also add Jews and Muslims, it becomes harder. You also add immigrants from countries where they're visually distinct uh, and it becomes harder. Um, and that's a fundamental challenge. That, that we're dealing with today and that, that I try to uh, find a solution to in, in the great experiment. Wait, it becomes harder for the society to function or it becomes harder for the Protestants and Catholics to hate each other once you inject Jews, Muslims and everyone else? Well, well both. So that's, that's the wonderful story that, you know, you can have a deep disagreement with each other, but if somebody comes in who's even more different, then suddenly you start to think of yourself as being more similar. There's a great example of that uh, from uh, uh, Southern Africa. Um, where in Malawi, these two tribes, uh, uh, the uh, Chawas and the Tumbukas, uh, are enemies. They think of each other really negatively, uh, have very negative stereotypes against each other. They would never marry each other or vote for each other's political candidates. And across a you know arbitrary colonial border uh, to Zambia, uh, those two groups suddenly get along. And the reason is that in Malawi, they're both pretty big groups and they can both hope to be in power. And across the border in Zambia, they're pretty small groups. And they're saying, well, look, we don't quite like each other. And we have some dissimilarities. But you know what? You're kind of right because it's those people from Western Zambia who are really bad. They're really different from us. And so this is a you know, universal human feature that you see in all kinds of uh, contexts. But it's also true that it just becomes harder for society to hold together. Right. So, um, you know, just think of a simple difference. If you walk down the street, you may not be able to tell by somebody's dress or uh, by the face, whether they're uh, a Catholic or Protestant uh, uh, citizen of the Netherlands. 
Um, but, but, but you often are able to tell that somebody is an immigrant or descends from immigrants. You often are able to tell that somebody is not white. Um, and so that makes it uh, uh, more dangerous. It makes it easier for society to fracture along those lines of, of salient difference. So there's always been divisions within democracies, but building uh, uh, democracies that work in the kind of radically religiously and ethnically diverse democracies we now have in the United States, but also in many other democracies around the world, is just that much harder. Are there other democracies around the world, G20 nations, that have anything like our ethnic composition that are doing better? Uh, well, it depends a little bit on, on how you count. I mean, arguably, Canada might be said to be doing a little bit better, but Canada has an easier history. Um, uh, Canada doesn't have a history of slavery in the same way. Uh, it also um, uh, gets to choose its immigrants much more than, than we do. And so uh, it's much more, uh, uh, you know, it's people who often come from much more elite families within their own societies. Um, uh, so there's a bunch of differences. But generally speaking, I sort of thought about this question. I thought, look, I want to build a model for how to make diverse societies work. And at some point, I thought, well, perhaps I'll just go to the 10 societies that are doing really well and report on them and tell a lovely story of what they're getting right. And then I'm say, we have to import those 10 things. Um, but, but those examples don't exist in, in a very convincing way. So you're a professor, you're a scholar. You wrote this book based in the idea that people would worry that diverse democracies might fall apart like ours. You've put together a lot of information that would argue against that it will fall apart because it's not really coming apart if you look at the statistics. But my question is, is the most important thing in terms of a fracturing of society, what's quote unquote really happening? The, if everyone, if, if the statistics you're saying were well known and believed, I would agree we'd have not a lot to worry about. But since they're disbelieved or since it's just felt that we're a fracturing society, does that make us a fracturing society? Uh, well, that, that absolutely... Um, is uh, the worry I have. One way of thinking about American society today is that uh, I worry very much about the political landscape. I worry very much about Donald Trump being re-elected in 2024. Uh, I worry very much about a broader kind of cultural civil war of the elites that I see everywhere around me. But I'm actually reasonably optimistic about the changes in, 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 around the country. I'm reasonably optimistic about um, the way in which Americans are, are, are starting deeper friendships with each other, um, about the rise in interracial uh, marriages, um, about the fact that actually opinion in the country is much less polarized uh, than it is among the elites, about the fact that um, Hispanics and African Americans are more optimistic about the future than, than, than white people are. So I think there's actually a lot of strengths we can build on. But the question is, are we, the elites, because you have an audience, Mike, and I have an audience, and by virtue of that fact, we are kind of elites. Are we going to screw it up for everybody else? Um, and, and that is a real possibility. Um, and, and, and thinking about the history of diverse democracies has reminded me of just how awful things are going to be if, if a society does fall apart. So, um, you know, I'm not a blind optimist. Um, I think that we can build a better future, but it depends on our choices. Um, and it depends in particular on whether the breadth of society is going to be able to defend itself against the imposition 
uh, of that kind of cultural war of the elites. I mean, has that happened in history that the opinion of the elites have has overridden the demographics and truth on the ground, thus causing, thus thrusting a country into fracture? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, World War I uh, is one example that comes to mind. Um, uh, there was not a, a deep groundswell uh, for war uh, in uh, fall 1913. There were mass protests of people in European nations saying they want to go to war with other countries. But when uh, a political crisis escalated, um, uh suddenly public opinion was on the side of war and social democrats uh, at the time were deeply disappointed with the willingness of working class people to participate in this war, to cheer on this war um, when they thought that they would refuse that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, absolutely. I think there's examples where elites managed to generalize uh, a conflict in a way that really transforms public opinion. Internally, though, as I think about the great empires that have fallen, let's put the United States in that category, there's a structural problem. There's rot from the inside. Are there examples where it was the perception of rot, not the real rot, that caused the crumbling? Well, the perception, I mean, it, it, I think studying the, the relationship between the real rot and the perception of rot is really complicated. Um, there's some interesting people now who think that Chernobyl was a much bigger uh, had played a much bigger role in the collapse of the Soviet Union than we previously realized because it was a sign uh, of a rot of society. Um, uh, so, so, so there's some reason uh, to to think that that, that might play a role. Uh, but there's also a lot of studies um, about uh, ethnic mobilization um, in politics. Uh, uh, you know, particularly in the African context, what you often have. Uh, according to to many scholars of the continent, is uh, you know tribal groups really being mobilized by politicians who are seeking to build the most effective political coalitions. Um, so they're really trying to think what kind of ethnic coalition do I need in order to cobble together a majority, and then they have quite a lot of agency both in deepening conflict and in drawing the lines of those conflicts. Um, so a lot of scholarship has been done on that in Africa, but you can see the same phenomenon happening, uh, obviously, in other geographical reasons as well. Um, so, so that kind of form of ethnic mobilization by conflict entrepreneurs who think that that's going to help them uh, uh, is, is a widespread phenomenon that political scientists uh, and comparativists worry about a lot. The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure by Yasha Munk. Yasha is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins and the founder of Persuasion, which is a lot of things, but to my ears, a fantastic podcast. Yasha, was a pleasure. Thank you. Such a pleasure to talk with you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's a shame that CNN Plus, the Quibi of news, will cease to exist. Such important stories out there, just from the state of Florida. First, there was the Straits Pretty Great bill. 
You court too much controversy if you call it the Don't Say Gay or the Parents' Bill of Rights, but we can all agree, you can say straight, darn it, I hope you do. And then there was, a few days ago, the issue of woke math. Did you hear this story? Governor Ron DeSantis rejected 40-something percent of all textbooks and almost three-quarters of the textbooks for elementary kids for having too many common core or social justice questions in their math. 41%, that's a majority said son of Florida man, who just wanted to learn, but also knew in his soul he needed some uplift. I have some sample questions that were rejected. If a train leaving Chicago at 6 p.m. traveled at 40 miles per hour, bypasses Indianapolis because they lack land acknowledgements towards the Miami, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people, when will the train have engaged in an act of self-care? If Xander appropriates 60% of Yvette's culture and Yvette marginalizes 70% of Zane's culture, how much of Zane's culture did Xander appropriate, keeping in mind that Zane had previously been subject to erasure by Annika's call-out? I mean, CNN Plus, that had a mathematical function right there in the name. And now they're not around to cover the woke math question. And if they were, they'd be further nonplussed by Ron DeSantis' latest initiative, which is termination of all special districts that were enacted in Florida prior to 1968, and that includes the Reedy Creek Improvement District. So you need an explanation which could only be provided by trained journalists asking a mere $6 a month for what you can get for free on their main network or their main network's rival or all of the Twitter feeds of all of their employees. Worth it. So worth it. The Reedy Creek District, what a CNN journalist could have told you, is is Disney World. That is the, it's not a county, but it's like its own little county. The corporation has a county. Florida's governor just initiated proceedings to take away Disney's dedicated district that it has enjoyed since 1967. What are the implications? Well, here's one from WFTV Orlando. Workers will merge into the county's payroll, but the counties will assume all of the expenses as well. Documents showing the Reedy Creek District often operates at a loss, and the district has a lot of debt. I think we agree it's somewhere between $970 million and $1.02 billion. So that a billion dollars in debt on the balance sheets that taxpayers might have to pay off for a tune of thousands of dollars per household, I'd say that's not a great selling point for the initiative. But on the other hand, what the price tag pays for, it is a pissy expression of peak at the state's biggest employer and attraction. And you can't put a price tag on that. Now, I do not think, and this is informed by expert opinion, that that's going to happen, that taxpayers are going to be assuming billions of dollars in debt. It's a little like Brexit, where the worst case scenarios were not palatable even to the boldest of Brexiteers. Still, the angry Republicans, angry at the Mouseketeers and their stance on don't say, get, no, I'm sorry, straight's pretty great. That could have big ramifications. Unlike Brexit, though, this one will probably get thrown out in court. But wouldn't it have been great for CNN Plus to be able to stew over all of this and hype the worst case scenarios and allow Don Lemon more room to tell us exactly what he thinks and more importantly feels about the decision? I know I do, and I'm not alone. CNN Plus's other subscribers, which numbers in the... Okay, I am alone. It turns out I'm, I'm alone. Sorry I had to leave the world, CNN Plus. Just as Florida alone seemed intent to provide hours and hours of crazy carnival fodder. And we haven't even gotten to Texas. Stay tuned for that special coverage on MSNBC to the power of negative two. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions and chief imagineer of PFP+. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. Thank you.